The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States' relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound Off with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Remembering September 11th, what would what would the foreign policy visions for both campaigns look like? We are going to talk to an all-star panel on that. Plus, new news out of the State Department where Bahrain and Israel have announced normalization of ties. I take it to the State Department for an exclusive interview with Morgan Ortega. So we have a lot to get through. Earlier today, Bahrain, according to the administration, will become the second Gulf nation to establish formal ties with Israel, joining the United Arab Emirates and normalizing relations with the Jewish state after years of quiet security ties, the White House said. So uh, a a massive, massive joint statement coming from the U.S., Bahrain, and Israel saying, quote, this is a historic breakthrough to further peace in the Middle East, end quote. I was just at the State Department and I spoke with Morgan Ortegas, who is the spokesperson for Secretary Pompeo. Take a listen to what she told me about how the deal came about. I just left the Oval Office with President Trump um, and his entire team, and I have to say it was an incredibly historic moment. It was one of those moments, uh, I was staring at the painting of Abraham Lincoln, as one of those moments that you remember for a lifetime. And uh, on the call, right before the press came in, uh, President Trump was talking to Prime Minister Netanyahu and King Hamad of Bahrain. And Prime Minister Netanyahu made the point that it took 26 years to get to uh, an Arab-Israel uh, peace deal. We haven't had one in 26 years. And within 20 29 days, this administration has had its uh, second historic uh, recognition of Israel from a, a Gulf Arab state. And we hope that there's more to come in the Middle East, but I think that this is an amazing moment. How did this happen? And I think that's a great question that you ask. Uh, this happens because at the very beginning of this administration, the very first trip that President Trump uh, took overseas was to the Middle East, especially to the Gulf, and then he went to Israel at the end of the trip. And he made it clear that his policy was going to to be radically different for the Middle East than that of the previous administration. His policy that he said he was going to pursue was a policy of peace, but it'd be, it would be one of, uh, of helping and emboldening our allies and friends, and that means the Gulf states and the state of Israel, and that would mean not rewarding uh, the state of Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran. So we've had two years, two and a half years, of a maximum economic pressure campaign uh, against the state of Iran so that they are unable to fund their terror 
network in the region, and now you're seeing Arabs and Israelis come together. What's it withdrawing from the Iran deal signal to states like Bahrain and, and other and, and other Arab states? That's a great question. You know, people often ask about what do our allies think about President Trump uh, withdrawing from some of these international deals. I can tell you, it's obvious, you cover the Europeans, you know that they weren't thrilled, they didn't agree with our decision. Saying that, it doesn't get enough coverage how betrayed our Gulf Arab allies felt about this deal. They have been very concerned about the billions of dollars uh, that was given to the regime in sanctions relief, the regime in, in Tehran through the JCPOA. And they were on the front lines of, of the terror uh, that was being exported from Tehran during the JCPOA before the sanctions were instituted again. They've had tax on Saudi oil fields, a tax on uh, their ships, a tax uh, on civilian airports, right, throughout the region. And so these are allies that and friends and partners that live next to Iran uh, that understood that em emboldening them and giving them uh, billions of dollars was not going to bring peace to the Middle East. In fact, it was setting the Middle East on fire. From an economic standpoint, that was also a really that has been a really crucial component of all of these negotiations, not just right. typically the, a, mili a militaristic approach. What economically did the administration push for between the Israelis and Bahrain? That's a, another fantastic question. And I think it's important to remember uh, that the benefits of the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain having this uh, now recognition and peace with Israel. Um, and the importance of this, of this recognition is that you have, you know, both UAE and Israel and Bahrain uh, as well, these are all uh, countries that are very techno technologically advanced. Uh, they are countries that uh, have diverse economies, especially UAE, of course. Israel has managed to make it in the region uh, without oil, and so they've had to be incredibly ingenuitive. So I think when it comes to, um, when it comes to cybersecurity, when it comes to intellectual property, when it comes to new tech developments, you're going to see collaboration between the Gulf Arabs and the Israel uh, from an economic perspective in ways that you've never dreamed before. Uh, you could see it just by having commercial flights that now go from Israel uh, to Abu Dhabi uh, that fly over Saudi Arabia. So you're going to begin to see businessmen and women uh, in Israel and in Bahrain and in UAE uh, doing business together. And listen, everybody's economy post-COVID uh, needs some sort of recovery. So this is the time when you should be strengthening alliances, strengthening trade, strengthening economic ties. And we think that this will be an uh, economic uh, incredibly positive thing for these states. Egypt, Jordan, Bahrain, UAE, there's a lot of talk that there could be some other states that follow. What signal does this send to the Palestinians right now as they're looking at now two Gulf Arab states in a matter of weeks? Well, the Palestinians should know that we want them to have a state. We want them to have peace. I think the Palestinian people have fallen victim uh, for quite some time to a leadership that is corrupt um, and that does, does not care uh, about peace, but instead about preserving their, their own leadership. Uh, you know, I'd ask the Palestinian people, what has what this leadership done for you? How have they advanced the cause of peace? How, how have they improved your economic security? So remember, under President Trump's uh, uh, Middle East vision for peace that he laid out in February, January, February of this year, uh, we, for the first time in this vision for peace, got Israel to agree to a Palestinian state. Never been able to do that before, right? So we just need the Palestinians to come to the table. Uh, we think the Palestinian people should put pressure on their leadership to know it is a new day in the Middle East. And just two quick topics. I know you're sure. carefully monitoring this on the Afghan peace talks with the Taliban. Yeah. Can you give us any update on where those talks stand? 
Yeah, so President Trump announced yesterday from the White House that he was sending Secretary Mike Pompeo to Doha. Uh, what you'll see tomorrow on, all of, on the television is uh, the opening ceremonies of the intra-Afghan negotiations. Uh, and Secretary Pompeo will be there with the government of Afghanistan, with Taliban, with civil society to kick off these negotiations. Listen, the hardest thing that diplomats do, the hardest job that Mike Pompeo and Zal Khalilazad have uh, are, are getting to peace at the end of a war. Whenever you have had 19 years of Americans fighting the Taliban, of working, uh, we've been working with the government of Afghanistan. The fighting since has continued. Yeah, since 9 11. Well, and, and exactly. A very poignant day for you and I to be discussing this. Uh, so we know that there is no way to fight your way out of this. Uh, problem in Afghanistan that we have to get all parties to the table to negotiate. Secretary Pompeo is there and we'll be kicking this off and I think it's it's certainly historic days. And then lastly, China uh, announcing that they were going to be taking some type of diplomatic retaliatory measures. They're saying in terms of the actions that the U.S. had taken with diplomats here in the U.S., it really does feel like a, another te uh, escalating tensions between uh, the Communist Party of China and the U.S. You know, we're cool as a cucumber. Right? We don't feel tensions are escalating. In fact, just the opposite. What we have done is made it very clear to the Chinese Communist Party that we want a reciprocal relationship. So if our diplomats in China are not allowed to meet with universities, if they have to get permission in order to have any sort of meetings or cultural events, uh, Chinese diplomats in the U.S. are going to have those same restrictions. Now, what we would like is no restrictions on anyone's diplomats. We would like Chinese diplomats uh, to be able to move around freely in the United States and allow our diplomats in China to do so. So far, the Chinese Communist Party have been unwilling to treat American diplomats in China the same way we treat their diplomats here. So we will continue to have a fair and reciprocal relationship. Uh, if they want to get to zero, right, in the sense of, of letting everyone be open and free, we're happy to get there. All they have to do is say the word. Something tells me she's not going to go see Mulan. That was Morgan Ortega, the spokesperson for Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, talking about uh, China uh, and the upcoming Taliban peace talks with Afghanistan and, of course, that big announcement today, Bahrain becoming the second Gulf nation to establish formal ties with Israel. They have now joined the United Arab Emirates in normalizing relations with the Jewish state after years of quiet security Ties. That, of course, coming from uh, the White House and all three nations announcing uh, in a joint statement, quote, this is a historic breakthrough to further peace in the Middle East, end quote. And uh, in a couple of days next week, September 15th, the UAE, the Emiratis, uh, are going to be uh, at the White House uh, with Israel uh, to, to have that ceremony signed. So Israel and the United Arab Emirates ceremony next week. Much more coming up next. We get a check on the markets. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent from Bloomberg TV and Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. They silenced me. They silenced me in the uh, in the chat, in the chat, uh, the the producer chat. I don't know how. I don't get the technology. You know, everyone has the zooms and the work from homes and everything. We have one. I'm silenced. They can't hear me in the breaks. All right, let's uh, let's talk stocks. Jeff Powell's on the line. He's a managing partner and chief investment officer at Polaris Wealth Advisory Group in San Francisco. Uh, Jeff, 
I'm looking at my terminal. The S&P 500 has strung together its two worst weeks since March. Wow. Shattering calm that had largely prevailed for five months. And then a closer look at the market trends, particularly in the ability to hold above levels that denote upward momentum. This suggests, Jeff, and you know this, that what has happened can be categorized as a correction to prevailing froth rather than a full-blown reordering of, se- uh, of sentiment. You know, it's it's really remarkable because the S&P 500 ended little change while the Nasdaq 100 fell for the fifth time in seven days to cap its worst week since March. And the tech-heavy, everyone's obsessed with the tech stocks this week, the tech-heavy index traveled 3% from high to low Friday and is 11% from its September 2nd record. I say this to you, Jeff, because then I eye what's happening in my neck of the woods here in Washington, D.C., and Senator Richard Shelby, a Republican from Alabama, one of the establishment folks, very in the know, very in the know, told reporters today, and it made some headlines in the Journal, Politico, Bloomberg, obviously, on top of it, and said that that fiscal stimulus might not be coming until after the election. Jeff, what do you make of all of this? <laughs> I'm still um, I'm still laughing at the fact that they cut you off of being able to, uh, to talk during the break. So I know, and um, it's, I know. Hey, Jeff, I hear you, and I can't even complain about it in the next break because they can't hear me. Go ahead. Absolutely, you're stuck with this. But you know, it's funny because you were saying you know about how the S and P had a, a bad week and you know, the Nasdaq and so on. But I think that the thing that's really truly the most remarkable thing of all is just how much we've recovered from the lows, given everything that we're really dealing with. I mean, if we were sitting down today and we hadn't seen the recovery, and we were talking about how uh, the GDP had dropped its greatest amount that it ever had dropped in the history of the stock market, that we'd had unemployment uh, while recovering from this low point, hit 1937 levels, uh, that we had earnings that had been dropping dramatically from the year before, uh, and while predicted to to recover, uh, still are 15%, 20% off of what the highs were from last year, we wouldn't be talking about making new time highs. And yet here we are. And so a lot of it, it, to me, is all based upon sentiment. It's based upon the stimulus that you were talking about that already occurred back in March. But it was also that there was this next check coming, uh, be it a trillion or three trillion. I mean, what's the difference between a couple trillion amongst friends? But I, I mean, you're, you're talking about stimulus that's being tossed around. But unfortunately, given the pandemic and, and the situation that we're dealing with, we don't have a choice. I mean, if it doesn't happen until after the election, really, I mean, if you look at where career politicians are these days, everybody is out there to preserve their own job in one way, shape, form or another. And if if Republicans or Democrats, regardless of which way you lean, are unwilling to put the American people first, they will definitely be risking their future employment when it comes to elections. Well, and, and, you know, I think that that just captures the the sentiment perfectly because we obviously in the national media are so focused on on the presidential but there's these down ballot races that you know so many of these folks in congress who are up for re-election whether it's in november or two years from now or in a couple of years from now that they're going to have to be really thinking about you know can they are they what's the return on investment for for their constituents let me let me ask you if what what does fiscal stimulus mean for certainty in the marketplace if it were 
to come before uh, before November third. Is this sort of a given now that the that the folks are, are recalibrating their expectations that it's likely going to happen after November third? Have the markets uh, become become uh, recalibrated to that, Jeff? I don't think they're accounted for it at all. I would say that the, you know, the, the more recent pullback that we've seen in the last week is sort of a realization that perhaps it may not be coming or at the very least that it's delayed. And, and there's beginning to be some worry that's being driven into the marketplace. Uh, you know, again, to me, when you're looking at the original stimulus and really what's being uh, put out there, uh, we really don't have a choice given the fact that the, the the situation we're in is completely COVID-related. If we're in a situation where we don't have a pandemic, then we're not in a situation where we're dealing with unemployment and people who are trying to make mortgage payments or make their rent or you know, just to keep their head above water. If you don't do it, you've got a catastrophic situation in your hands where people aren't you know, they're out on the street. You're dealing with foreclosures and people that are being kicked out of uh, their apartments. And then the government's going to have to pick up the tab there anyway. So it's really kind of a lesser of evils. Do you keep people in their homes with stability uh, or do you let you know nature's course take its course and put them out on the street and they're still going to have to have a bed to sleep in and food to eat and the government would still be responsible for, for doing that one way or the other. So Jeff. to me, not having a complete dis- disruption of our entire financial world is, is the lesser of evils. Jeff Powell's online. Jeff is, of course, the managing partner and chief investment officer at Polaris Wealth Advisory Group out in San Francisco. TikTok also back in the news today. TikTok pushing forward with deal to meet looming deadline. Uh, China's ByteDance is still considering bids from two possible buyers, Oracle and Microsoft, which have teamed up with Walmart. Uh, The president is saying that that September 15th deadline is still very much uh, in play. Just quickly, Jeff, while I have you, I mean, where does China factor into the markets and U.S.-China tensions uh, factor into what we're seeing uh, on the street? I mean, it can it, every single time it seems like it's uh, kind of disappeared. It's kind of like a game of of whack a mole. It seems like it wants to <laughs> rear its ugly head again uh, for us and and uh, you know start to stir the pot a little bit more. I mean, obviously, it was everything to do with last year's market. Uh, and then just when we think that we've got enough on our plates uh, between pandemics and uh, a you know disastrous economy, then we start having fights with our neighbors about things like uh, uh, TikTok. It, it seems pretty silly given the bigger scheme of things of what we're dealing with. But it's obviously a real thing. I mean, between uh, the Chinese coming out a few weeks ago and saying that they wanted to actually become much less dependent upon the United States uh, with regard to chip manufacturing. Well, they actually didn't name us directly, but they said foreigners of chip manufacturing, which was obviously directed uh, directly at us. And, and it's in direct relations to who won and TikTok and other things that, uh, that we seem to be wanting to mess with them about. So uh, is, does it come into play? Absolutely. I mean, again, I think the Chinese look at, at uh, politics a little bit differently than we do when uh, Premier Xi has a, a life uh, subscription in his position, where obviously all he has to do is wait until November to see if uh, Donald Trump is still in office or not, and then to see what we're going to see with uh, an ex-president if he's not in office. And so that's why I think that you're going to see some yeah. some heating up. 
And that's why I thought the front page of the journal today, I have it right in my hand, Biden's pledge on China looks a lot like Trump. Something tells me this is the one area of agreement on national security between uh, nominee Biden and President Trump. Hey, Jeff, stay safe out there in San Francisco with all the fires. We're thinking of everybody out there. Jeff Powell, managing partner and chief investment officer at Polaris Wealth Advisory Group in San Francisco. Coming up, we talk more policy and politics. We've got an all-star panel. I'm also going to check in with uh, Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney. Democrat from New York, uh, and we're going to remember 9-11, and of course we're also going to talk about geopolitics and politics of the day. Where's the stimulus? Where's the stimulus? I got to tell John Ferris something on Monday. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Fiscal stimulus talks stall. Does that mean we're not getting stimulus until after the election? Plus, all eyes on that election. Bob Woodward's book, sure to dominate the 60 Minutes conversation this weekend. And new developments on the geopolitical front. I just got back from the State Department, and they are saying that Bahrain and Israel have announced a normalization of ties. We've got jam-packed, jam-packed political, political, geopolitical hour. All of that, plus Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, a Democrat from New York, to help us remember, remember uh, September 11th, and also to talk issues of the day. We remember today, 19 years ago, the September 11th attacks on our country, and... We never forget. I mean, every time any of us drive past the Pentagon on 395 or, or see it, 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 it's the heroism, hopefully, is what we now first remember and not the horror uh, that so dramatically reshaped our world. It's going to be a theme throughout the next hour for us. Uh, I'm uh, grateful to welcome to the program to navigate through today Boyd Matheson. He is a former chief of staff for Senator Mike Lee, uh, the Republican from Utah. He is also, of course, the opinion editor, opinion editor for the Deseret News. And Basil Smakel, who is a Democratic strategist and former executive director of the New York State Democratic Party. Basil, I mean, where were you on 9-11? Oh, that's uh, it's a moment I can't ever forget. I actually was voting in a primary wow. um, as the first plane hit. And a dear friend of mine called me while I was still in the voting booth, asked me if I had heard anything on the news because there was an explosion at the World Trade Center. He worked very close by and can see people falling out of the building. Um, When I got back to my apartment to turn on the news, not only was I watching um, the, the, the coverage of it unfold, but I was working for Hillary Clinton in the Senate at the time, and we were about to get on our morning conference call. As we're in the middle of that call, the second plane hit. And I just remember how 
everyone was just startled and scared, and we just agreed to hang up the phone very quickly and make sure we found our staff wherever they were and our loved ones. Um, and and I remember it was just a just a, an amazing moment. I was married at the time also and couldn't find my wife. And that was wow. a bit scary, but I, I remember it clear as day. And uh, Vice President Mike Pence, as well as uh, uh, Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden and uh, others uh, uh, honoring the the ceremonies earlier today, President Trump as well, uh, acknowledging the ceremonies traveling to Shanksville, Pennsylvania, the site of the third plane that had gone down. Boy, Matheson, where were you on 9-11? I was actually living in uh, Oregon, uh, just outside of Portland there in mm. Beaverton, and, and I was actually with my uh, my young daughter's. Uh, they're getting ready for the the day to get rolling, and uh, it was when I was working for a software company. Uh, we had offices in New York and around the world, and uh, and of course everything stood still. And uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, those uh, who can remember back to that, those those feelings uh, and those emotions of of understanding what was taking place, understanding that things were were going to be different. Uh, but also that there were, there's always that uh, morning in America. There is that next day, uh, and that's where we always uh, get that step forward. And Americans rise up and do extraordinary things in the midst of a, of a tragedy, and the morning after a tragedy. Uh, and to me, that's what always gives me hope. And, and it reminds me too that I, I think the word that we all need to uh, focus on a little bit more is the word remember. I, I think our future mm. depends on our ability. Uh, to actually remember. And I think the thing we should remember most uh, is that we honor best uh, those who have gone before by living our lives with excellence today. And that mm. includes getting rid of contempt. It includes uh, treating each other uh, not as opposition, uh, but as fellow citizens uh, who may see things a little differently, but we can elevate the conversation and, and we can do the things that those who uh, did pass away, especially those in Pennsylvania, Mm. Uh, who really gave that ultimate sacrifice for. I was struck by comments that uh, the chairman of the National Endowment for Humanities, John Petey, made earlier on this week on this program when he discussed about how when they were doing some remembering with uh, veterans in the military who have served in some horrible parts all over the world, fighting for freedom uh, and fighting for Americans. Uh, and when they came back and they were doing some writing programs to help the healing process uh, for these soldiers, they actually read them letters from the Civil War of soldiers who wrote in wow. the Civil War. And I just have that, that thought today, I think of how we remember that uh, of just all different sacrifices that have been made is, is so incredibly important. I was on my way to history class. I was the, the mm -hmm. when, uh, I was in the hallway at history class when students were uh, uh, telling the news for lack of a better term uh that they had heard uh from from this was before cell phones and whatnot and social media so this was they were hearing kids were getting pulled from class and so that is how uh, students had learned and this was outside of philadelphia but still a, a part where people do commute to new york even even there all right now let's pivot to another big big development today and that of course is the fading chances of there being economic stimulus between now and Election Day. This after yesterday, the Senate failed to pass uh, the skinny version of the bill. And now Senator Richard Shelby, a prominent Republican in the Senate, Senate of Alabama, has come out and said that actually, folks, that stimulus might not get done 
might not get done until after November 3rd. Take a listen to what Larry Kudlow had to say uh, earlier today about uh, the latest Senate stimulus. I see no reason why it couldn't have been passed, frankly, because there's a lot of agreement on many of those issues. So he says there's a lot of agreement. Democrats are saying there's not agreement. Boyd, I mean, is the stimulus needed? I mean, you, you're out in the Deseret News. I mean, you've got your finger on the pulse of, of, of where, you know, conservatives are outside of the cities. Is it needed or is it, will a skinny version come after November 3rd? Well, I, I don't see anything passing before November 3rd for, for purely political purposes. And uh, and this is uh, – I'm going to be an equal opportunity offender today. Uh, this, is a, a pro, this is a Democrat problem. This is a Republican problem. Uh, and th- this is a classic Washington, D.C. fake fight and a false choice. Uh, Mitch McConnell put forward a false choice of either we do this or we don't care about small business and we don't care about getting it out. The Democrats in the House uh, did the similar thing with the $3 trillion version. Uh, I can't understand why uh, we keep doing the same thing. And so this is also I'm going to I'm going to really offend everybody. I'm going to go to the we the people uh, <laughs> that we keep we keep reelecting. Ninety four percent of incumbents are going to win reelection again this year. Uh, and uh, and I think that's the, the real thing. So I, I think part of it is we have to reject the fake fight and the false choice. Uh, I do think doing things smaller, more laser focused uh, is a good thing. I think it's we need to get that uh, as a general rule in the House and the Senate. Uh, that, hey, let's quit doing these big comprehensive things. Uh, And let's remember, too, that not all trillion dollars are created equal. Uh, And let's get to the things that actually matter, that are germane to the bill or specific to the issue. Uh, And let's do the right thing for the American people. 9-11 would have been a great day, would have been a great day for Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer to stand on the steps and say, let's bring it together. Yeah. Hey, you know, you talk about the uh, one of the things we didn't get to this week. It'll come up on the show. But Ben Sass talking about term limit ideas. We'll get to that. That's what you're talking about, term limits, which are always popular in the polls. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli. On Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cerulli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Ratings were down for the NFL debut. I watched it. I stayed up and watched it. Andy Reid couldn't win a Super Bowl with the Eagles. Won one with the Kansas City Chiefs. Beat the Houston Texans last night. Uh, But it was down. The ratings were down. They attracted a far smaller TV audience than a year ago. Held back, I'm reading from Jerry Smith on the Bloomberg Terminal, held back by a busy schedule that included all major sports vying for viewers at the same time because of the COVID-19 delays. 16.4 million people watched last night's game between Andy's Chiefs and the Houston Texans on Comcast's NBC network, according to the early Nielsen ratings. That's a 16% drop from the opening game of last season. What was everybody doing last night? What was on? what else was on? Uh, I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Boyd Matheson's with us, our Republican insider. Basil Smichel's with us. He is our Democratic insider. Uh, Basil, I want to come back to this area of fiscal stimulus just because it really increasingly looks like it's not going to happen between November 3rd and now. But it could happen in the lame duck. 
uh, just to walk us through the process and not the politics of this, but the process. <clears throat> is is well, it still likely yeah. that some fiscal stimulus will ultimately get through? It, it, it is possible. I mean, I think that both parties, you know, and I, and I in, in truth, take Boyd's points um, and, and actually agree with what he's saying uh, in terms of the politics around it. Uh, I, I, it's possible that the politics could force um, some kind of decision, some kind of small, as they say, some skinny bill, even though one, a skinnier bill didn't pass, but some small uh, measure that provides uh, voters, Amer- you know, Americans, with some package going into uh, this fall, going into the election. I, I, it's possible. Uh, there is going to be pressure put on uh, on the leadership. You know, Chuck Schumer uh, talked about the package not being able to support things like transportation and and other. Uh, uh, other means that would be able to really get the economy moving again. I take that. I get that. Some of those issues may impact other uh, members of the Senate. But the truth is, I don't know that people outside, and to be honest with you, this kind of ties into some points with respect to the 9-11 stimulus uh, way back when. Because there are a lot of other folks outside, there are a lot of folks outside of New York and areas that were directly affected or, or most affected that may not understand why, you know, our leaders are asking for this support and this money. Now, granted, this pandemic has affected the entire country, but it clearly affects certain geographies differently and certain racial and ethnic groups differently. And if and, and the part of the challenge is this issue of incrementalism, which I just talked to my students about on Wednesday. You know, we do not have, this country, voters do not have tolerance for sweeping radical pieces of legislation. It's remarkable. So if Such we can, a good point. So Such we, a good point. If we can... If we can agree on some very small items to at least get the ball moving, then I think we have there's this ability to go back to voters and say we did this. But right now, um, this even a rejection of incrementalism is has become problematic. Well, even Ben Sass, uh, Senator Ben Sass of Republican Nebraska, he writes this op-ed in the Journal earlier this week about proposing structural changes. I mean, the onslaught, they weren't even political. They were just some ideas. You know, get rid of this, maybe do this. There was, you know, interesting things about term limits, you know, and whatnot. But the onslaught of criticism that the guy faced just for saying, trying to open up a conversation Boyd, I thought was remarkable. Uh, I want to get your response to that before I, I take us to, to the next topic. But this, but just to, to that point that Basel just made about incrementalism and a theme that we've come on this show with is, you know, something like, you know, China has the Communist Party of China with their One Belt, One Road initiative. That's, you know, decades long. The U.S., of course, has been unable to, to map out a nonpartisan, apolitical type of arrangement simply to Basel's point, Boyd about this issue pertaining to incrementalism. Yeah, and Basel nailed it uh, 100% right there in terms of how we are approaching things. And, and now you have the extremes on both the far right and the far left yep. uh, that are preventing any kind of discussion. And this is the interesting thing. Uh, I, when we get all the all said and done, I think the, the group that's going to have the biggest impact on what happens in November 
is going to be this group. We're calling them the movable middle. It's yep. about 25 oh. to 30%. They disconnected. They disconnected because they can't stand the polarization and all the divisive rhetoric. Or the and media. The I mean, thing. and I throw the media yeah, in that, yes. too. Yeah. No yeah. question. No question. And the only thing that will get those voters to reengage is to talk about community, compassion, self-reliance, and opportunity or upward mobility. And nobody's talking about that other than Basel's talking about it in his class because he's got the right <laughs> focus right. there. But, 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 think about, but think about that. I mean, those are. I happen to live yeah. in a place that we do those things pretty well. We have a nice free market economy and strong institutions of civil society and upward mobility is a real thing. Uh, people are involved in the community. And those are I'm the things that the Utah. vast majority – this. This, yeah, you should. The the 30% of those voters who I think will ultimately decide it, but neither party is talking to that. Neither House of Congress is talking to those issues. And if we did an incrementalized bill like Basel's talking about, uh, that would get to those issues, and those people would engage in the political process again, and that would be good for the country. All right, Boyd, I know you've yeah. got to run after it, but I do want to just get your thoughts on this, and I'm going to come back to it, because coming up, we're checking in with Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, a Democrat from New York, an important folks' conversation on U.S.-China tensions and, uh, and, and where the fiscal stimulus is headed. But, you know, I, the California governor has said this is a damn climate emergency, referring to the, the, the wildfires. A thousand-mile sheet of smoke is driving air quality to dangerous levels. Gavin Newsom saying that this is a damn climate emergency and it's real the images that have ravaged the social media and ricocheted across the front pages of the nation's newspapers now as more than 3.1 million acres in california and 1.4 million acres in washington and oregon uh, is is really really horrible very quickly do you think republicans at some point boyd are going to have to to talk about this and you only have like 15 seconds uh, the answer is yes. Everybody's got to talk about it. Yeah. It's climate change. It's forestry. It's all of those oh, things. Boyd Let's Stang. get it all on the table. Boyd staying. Basel's leaving. Professor Basel's got to go back to teach his class. Basel, thank you. I apologize. I would have given you the last word there. But Basel, come back anytime. Basel Smichael. Uh, more coming up next with Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney. I'm Kevin Cerulli. This is Bloomberg 99.1. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. My next guest, friend of the program, always a, a privilege and a treat to talk to her, Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, Democrat from New York. She represents New York's 12th Congressional District. Congresswoman, you know, on a day like today when we remember 9-11, I, I, I just... What do you what do you go through uh, on 9/11 and, and what, what goes through your your memory 
during a day like today because I can remember pre-COVID when I would interview you in the halls of Congress and you always have your FDNY <laughs> jacket on to try to get some uh, assistance for, for the 9-11 families and for the firefighters. And I know this is literally a day that you wear uh, on your sleeves every single day. Well, it, and I had the fire code on again as I went down to uh, down to the site, to the to the museum site, the memorial site. It was a a form of uh, remembering and showing respect, and remembering it's a type of meeting. And I must tell you, Kevin, uh, everyone in political leadership in our great city and state, and even from New Jersey, were there to uh, really show their respects as the names of the fallen were were, were called. Uh, uh, Mayor. Former Mayor Bloomberg was there, yeah. along with Mayor de Blasio and uh, Governor Cuomo, and and uh, Vice President Biden uh, honored us with his presence, with his wife Jill, uh, showing their respects and their remembrance, along with practically every elected official from the city and state level. But most moving of all was the families that were there with photographs of their 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 relatives mm. their brother their their father i was particularly moved by a woman who had drawn a chair right up next to the memorial and held a picture of her daughter and had her name had her hand on the name that was written into the wall of remembrance uh, being wow. close to her just holding on to her name it was deeply deeply moving it's wow. always deeply moving uh, but i'm proud of the way the city rebuilt and i'm proud of the role that i played and so many others did in making that happen uh, one of the things that I'm working on now is the pandemic risk insurance uh, for business disruption for pandemics going forward. But the idea came out of 9-11. After 9-11, we couldn't rebuild. Terrorism we couldn't risk get insurance. any insurance. Yeah. And, then, and then we finally got TRIA, the anti-terrorism risk insurance that allowed us to rebuild. I mean, uh, I, and, let and me, it's beautiful. Let me, yeah, let me, let me pick up on this because this is so fascinating to me that the insurance for, for so many small businesses that have just been absolutely shuttered. Another one that, that really resonated here in Washington Capital Lounge, just the restaurants and, and all these businesses having to close their doors, not being able to have pandemic insurance. And that was something that was a huge conversation that didn't exist prior to 9-11, terrorism risk insurance. Are you, are you, bullish, are you bullish that, that, that this could be created, that Republicans and Democrats can finally agree on something to, to help so many of these small businesses? We, we did for TRIA. We will come together yeah. on this because it's needed. And we can prepare for it. I would say that if you have a national disaster like 9-11 or the pandemic, of course government's going to come in and help. But if you can uh, formulate a plan in advance, it's, it just works better. It's fair. It's a public-private uh, uh, partnership. Uh, TRIA, I think, is one of the most important bills I've ever authored, and also the remembrance of the 9-11 heroes after 9-11. Mm. Um, I've never seen our country more united and determined. We passed a number of bills to protect our people and to make us stronger and created homeland security. We did all kinds of things to make ourselves stronger, but we did not cover the health 
benefits and compensations for the heroes and heroines who rushed into burning buildings to save the lives of others. And I'll tell you, Kevin, we lost almost 3,000 people on 9-11, but we lost thousands and thousands more. Uh, afterwards, because they worked on the pile, they were told it was safe, it was not safe. Many of them have died, many are sick and dying, and we have to be there and give them the support they so justly deserve. To yeah. me, it's always an emotional day. Of course, during that time, uh, it was a very... Uh, Every time I would go down there, I'd end up in tears. And every time I think I'm over it, I go back to another another anniversary or remembrance. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can't help but, well, but cry for what happened. Well, and and I think something. it's so outrageous, Kevin. Is this, all those people that were killed, all they did was get up and go to work, which we do every day, which you do, do today. And, and they were killed to just because they were Americans. It's outrageous. Yeah. And uh, and yeah. the response of our country right. to take care of them was so greatly appreciated. And grief is not something that you can just get over and put behind you. It's something that you have to live with and you, and you have to carry it in different ways as you go through life. I mean, and it, it's not something that you can just let go of. You have to choose every day to, to shift it somewhere. Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney's on the line. She's a Democrat from New York representing New York's 12th congressional district. I, I want to talk to you. You talk about just the families of 9-11 and, and all of us are just so struck by the, fir- the, the first responders dealing with the pandemic i mean and so many of our of our hospital workers our nurses and and you know folks delivery workers you know on the front lines of, of human interaction and in, in in these uh places all over the country they didn't sign up for this they didn't sign up to to do this and they're all political stripes i'm not just you know this isn't democrats or republicans i mean this is people of all political stripes they didn't sign up for to not have uh the gear and whatnot so it, it it's it's really I think important that these structural conversations be having as it relates to insurance and whatnot. I want to talk to you about a story that I broke earlier this week, Congresswoman, about uh, how the State Department was, or the the administration rather, not necessarily the State Department, the Department of Homeland Security more precisely, let me be very precise, the Department of Homeland Security is looking into restricting some cotton imports from the Xinjiang region. Fashion is is an incredibly important industry in your district. And China, of course, always on your mind as well. Uh, I'm curious what you think the right approach should be in dealing with China uh, and and their rise. Well, there's a, that's a big question. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that we are stronger uh, if we work together. Um, as and as we did after the financial crisis, China was a very positive. Uh, partner in helping us to stabilize our economy and the world economy. But we can't let them take advantage of us in in trade deals. They have to be fair to American workers. And uh, I support uh, strong trade deals that protect American workers and American rights. This is a bigger issue. Uh, But I do want to come back to your theme of of the essential workers. My favorite day, part of the day, is at 7 o'clock when everybody starts clapping for the frontline workers. For 9-11, and I've done an essential workers bill. I'd love to come back on your program and talk about it. Of course, yeah. And I know if you have water, feel free to to grab a a cup of water. But uh, but just to 
to pick up on this point, Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney's on with us. She's a Democrat from New York. She represents New York's 12th congressional district. Yeah. Uh, and But go ahead if you want to, to finish that thought. Well, I, I, just like I did the 9-11 health yeah. compensation, I did one for the essential workers that are on the front line, whether it's the health care workers or... Uh, transportation workers, they're among the, the ones that became the sickest. Everybody on the front lines that had to work to provide services to help all of us through this pandemic. Also, remember the trouble we had in getting uh, personal protective equipment? I put in a bill, and then we started making it. You talk about fashion, and they're big employers in my district in our city, and this is Fashion Week. We're right in it right now. Yeah. And I had a, a fashion advisory committee. We got together and decided we would just work on uh, sewing masks and gowns and footgear and headgear for our hospitals because they couldn't get it. And I believe we should keep some of that work domestic. We should produce it domestically. Uh, so I put in a bill that 25% of our strategic national stockpile should be made in America so that we're never caught in that situation again where our health care workers go to work with garbage bags. It's, yeah, it's, it's just it's incredibly, incredibly disheartening to see some of the conditions that uh, folks were, were having to work in. All right, lastly, before I let you go on this Friday and you get to enjoy your weekend, first of all, thanks so much, Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney. But I know you are on the, the front lines of the battle as it relates to the U.S. Postal Service and uh, Louis DeJoy and, and all of the hearings that have been going on on that front. Are you confident that the U.S. Postal Service is going to be adequately prepared for the increase in mail-in ballots? Uh, and are you confident that this is going to be a free and fair election, Congresswoman? Well, I, I don't know of any fraud that has been exposed anywhere. They keep saying it's there, but they never seem to be able to find it. And we know that more people are going to be voting by mail because of the COVID crisis. Um, it's uh, very important that we prepare as much as possible. I had a bill that I authored that uh, would fund the post office at $25 billion, which is what the Board of Governors says is needed, and to also reverse the damaging actions that uh, Postmaster General DeJoy has taken to slow down the mail. We started getting all kinds of reports so that the mail was being slowed down. We had a hearing, and the Speaker called back Congress. It's, I've never seen this in my lifetime happen. Congress was called back in on a Saturday for an emergency vote on my bill called Delivering for America, which funded the post office yeah. and reversed the harmful actions that he had taken to slow down the mail. It's particularly horrible in the middle of a pandemic. And, and right before an important election. Exactly. So this would stop any of those changes and restore the damage uh, until after the election uh, and after the COVID crisis. So out of that hearing came all kinds of allegations on, and other areas. And that's another conversation for another day. I'd love to come back on your show, Kevin. But I think tonight and today we should remember the brave men and women Mm. And the innocent of Americans, what, what struck me is uh, it was so cruel to think that uh, all they did was go to work and they were killed. Yeah. All, all other attacks have always been sort of military, military bases, you know, a war. This was just murdering innocent Americans. It's just outrageous beyond belief. 
and uh, New York, uh, it was uh, among our finest hour. I've never seen New Yorkers more determined and uh, more coming together uh, and uh, in support of, of helping each other and helping to rebuild. I, oh, gosh, there's so many stories. And to see the families there with the pictures of their loved ones showing their respect mm. and seeing uh, the sacrifice that their families have given uh, because of this. And our and our firefighters, particularly, we lost 348 fire, firefighters on that day. And, uh, and because they worked on the pile, they have been among the sickest. So it's that's just, why I always wear the yeah. fire coat when I was She always for... wears it. I mean, literally, folks. She, <laughs> but I, no, but I'm serious. It's Because it, even, I mean, I was in middle school when, when 9-11 happened and, and, and just... You know, it, the, the, it, New York really was a role model. It was the leadership of New York of all political stripes, but it was the public servants uh, that, that really were a role model. And, and obviously the firefighters and, 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 what, and, and you, that stays with you. So when you see someone as a journalist, you know, an upstart just chasing someone, you know, in the halls of Congress, and there's a congresswoman with an FDNY uh, <laughs> A jacket on, even in the dog days of summer, you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, that's someone who jacket. believes in the yeah, it's exactly. A hero's jacket. It's, it is, it is a gave, And I was honored they gave it to me. It's my most prized possession. I love it. It's a symbol of the unity we felt. But in a way, during COVID, I think New York was a leader to the nation. We were the epicenter. We learned how to combat it in many ways, and and we came out of it. Now our our infection rate is below one percent. I'm proud of New York, and I don't realize I don't think a lot of people people realize how much uh, how much research is taking place in New York because we had so yeah. many hospitals and so many uh, patients. A lot of hope. this research with vac- vaccines and treatments are taking right. place right in our great city. Well, and I hope, and I hope that that, that the scientists, uh, American scientists in particular, uh, will be celebrated for all of the contributions that they've made. All right, Congresswoman Car- Carolyn Maloney, I don't want your staff to get mad at me. I know I've kept you way past time on a Friday. She, of course, is the Democrat from New York, representing New York's 12th congressional district. Just to reset here, my name is Kevin Cirilli. I am the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. We're remembering, of course, 9/11. I want to welcome back to the program, Boyd Matheson. He is the former chief of staff for Senator Mike Lee. He is an opinion editor of the Deseret News right now. Uh, you know, Boyd, I want to get your your reaction to, to Congresswoman Maloney because I didn't even think of pandemic insurance. You know, I mean, we here at Bloomberg, I mean, of course, this is right up our alley, but you, you, from a business angle perspective, it's it would be unheard of not to have TRIA these days, Terrorism Risk Insurance Act, TRIA, you know, that, that, of course, has been so incredibly important to not just to to cities and skyscrapers, but you think of stadiums across the country and whatnot and the liability that comes with, with that type of insurance. Think of how many businesses could have been saved. Think of the financial, fiscal mess that we might have been able to just a fraction have avoided if there was some pandemic insurance market in the marketplace, that public-private partnership, Boyd. Yeah, and I think you hit it right at the end there. It's the it's the public private partnership that's the key to to all of that. And uh, yeah, you look especially at those small businesses, the medium sized businesses uh, that really took the brunt of uh, so much of the pandemic. Uh, if they had had something, then the the interesting thing about that 
is it would have prevented everyone hanging on Congress exactly. to do the right thing at the right time. Uh, and so I would much, I would have much more trust and confidence that, hey, I've got this kind of insurance for my business. Uh, the market's going to take care of that, and that's going to be in place for me, so I'm good to go, as opposed to, you know, worrying about whether the, you know, the four-person law firm of, of Pelosi, McConnell, McCarthy, and Schumer are going to get the job done in the end. Uh, and I'd, I'd take the the private sector there uh, six ways to Sunday. Well, that, but what I don't understand is in terms of to come back to this this notion. I mean, and there's even an insurance market for uh, the wildfires and, and 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 whatnot. But to come back to this notion of of just the, a massive fiscal stimulus bill being the only solution on the table to avoid the pandemic, we in the media have done. A job. I won't use an adjective, but a job uh, of of describing. Oh well, coming out of Washington is only going to be fiscal stimulus. Well, what what I just learned from Congresswoman Maloney is, well, what about an insurance marketplace for pandemic? What about some preventative me- measures so that if we unfortunately were to ever find ourselves in this situation, it wouldn't it wouldn't happen? So do you, how do, how do lawmakers kind of crack that code, so to speak? To, to make it less about the the dollar signs and the amount of money on the fiscal stimulus and actually the policy substantial policy ideas yeah they unfortunately they have to do it over and over and over again to prove that they can actually do it uh, and the biggest problem is under both Republicans and Democrats the Senate in particular has not functioned as a great deliberative body uh, they they do very little uh, they come in they vote on a few uh, you know, post office names and uh, and you know are out by Thursday afternoon uh, and they're they're not doing real debating and amending of bills in front of the American people everything is crafted behind closed doors everything is an all or nothing vote uh, I would love I would love to see debated on the floor of the US Senate this very issue let's let's talk about this kind of pandemic insurance what does that look like what should that be and it should be done in front of the american people but most of the time you know when i was uh, chief of staff it just amazed me some of the greatest speeches given by both democrats and republicans were to an empty chamber it's crazy uh, and just echoed and oh i can't so i used to actually i'm embarrassed to say this i'll probably get in trouble it's friday so maybe i won't but i would go in uh to the chamber whenever i would need to not nap but whenever i would need a moment to just catch my breath because no one's in there noble well i would because you know you're in the halls of congress and there's all you know it's just like chaos everyone's you know get this scooplet get this scooplet tweet it out put it on instagram you know the whole nine yards and then I'm like, yep. you know, wh- where's there a moment of pause? And then I go in and then you have like, but it is, it's a privilege to be able to do it because you get to observe the way that lawmakers and their staff, everyone from the, from the Senate pages up to the people like yourself, the chief of staff to, of course, the principals. It's really remarkable. All right, before I let you go, we got a couple more minutes. I got to ask you about your old boss, Senator Mike Lee, because he and his brother, Mike Lee and Thomas Lee, are on the short list for the Supreme Court that the president put out on list of potential Supreme Court picks. Now, Senator Lee has said he doesn't necessarily want this. I didn't recognize that Thomas Lee, his brother, is also a legal tour de force uh, in conservative circles. And so I'm, I'm curious, I mean, how will SCOTUS picks play in 2020? Yeah, it, uh, it it will be a big deal, uh, as it was in 2016, and uh, either of those uh, Lee brothers would uh, be a great asset to the court. Uh, Thomas Lee, he's on the Supreme Court here in the state of Utah, and uh, he was a clerk for 
uh, Justice Thomas. Uh, and then, of course, Senator Lee was a, uh, a clerk for Justice Alito. So there's, uh, there's a lot of firepower there. And, of course, their father was the Solicitor General uh, for Ronald Reagan. So they, uh, they know their way around the court. Uh, but I'll tell you, the one thing that most people don't realize uh, about both of the Lee brothers is, is that their greatest skill is not in their oratory. It's in their listening. Uh, mm. They are two of the best listeners. And they got this from their dad. Uh, every picture you will ever see of Rex Lee uh, is of him listening. Even though he argued more cases in front of the Supreme Court than anybody in history to that point, every picture of him, whether it was with President Reagan or uh, before the court, was always him in a pose of listening. And uh, both of them are intense listeners, and the, the court could use either one of them. All right, what's on your radar before I let you go? Oh, man, what's on my radar? I, I wish we would get something going here for the American people. I think as, I think as we do move into election cycle, uh, I do think it's important for vo- voters to, to recognize that, hey, it's not just about, you know, asking questions of candidates. Most of us don't get a chance to sit down with a candidate that way, especially in a pandemic. But there are a lot of questions we ought to ask ourselves uh, about candidates. Uh, before we cast votes this fall. And uh, I think that's a big deal. We should ask ourselves, you know, is this person in a position to show political courage? Uh, what are they for? We know what they're against. That's, uh, that's what we always hear in terms of being against their opponent. Uh, but tell me what you're for. What's the vision? Uh, what, do I th- what do I think about when I listen to this candidate? Uh, am I thinking about them in office, or do I find myself saying, oh, hey, that'll be helpful to my family or to my neighborhood or community? Uh, right. And ultimately, I think we need to remember that, while we will hear this over and over, this is a battle for the heart and soul of the nation, uh, that is just wrong. We need to reject it, because to accept that, you'd have to accept that the heart and soul of the nation uh, is found in a political office. Wow. The only place you can find the, the heart and soul of America is in the heart and soul of the American people, and well, we all need to remember that. Especially Here's what's on my radar. Here's what's on my radar, Boyd Matheson. Uh, game three of the 2001 World Series at Yankee Stadium when the heart and soul of the nation was uh, on a baseball field when former President Bush threw the first pitch. A memory I will never, ever forget watching. Thank you for listening. We leave in gratitude for all of those, and we remember 9-11. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.